0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Hearing loss that occurs gradually as we age is common. The medical term to describe it is presbycusis. About 25% of people in the United States between the ages of 55 and 64 have some degree of hearing loss. For those older than 65, the number of people with some hearing loss is of almost one in two. Wow.
2: On today's program, we'll discuss hearing problems and age-related hearing loss with a Mayo Clinic expert.
1: Also on the program, we'll learn how new treatment modalities are improving outcomes for patients with cancer of the pancreas.
2: And we'll learn about the common back problem, a slipped or herniated disc. That's this week's program, up next. Tinnitus,
1: or tinnitus, I guess is also correct pronunciation, also ringing in the ears. It's a sensation of hearing a sound when there isn't any sound. It's often described as a ringing, a buzzing, humming, tweeting, or pulsing sound in the ears. And you may hear it in one or both ears and the sound can be present
2: all the time or it can come and go. In most cases, tinnitus, tinnitus, I gotta figure out which one I'm gonna go with, (laughs) can, it can be managed. But for some, it's a chronic condition that can affect sleep and everyday function. Fortunately, there are options to reduce its effects. And here to talk about tinnitus and how it can be treated is Dr. Gaila Poling. Dr. Poling is the Director of Adult and Pediatric Diagnostics in Audiology at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program. It's good to see you, Dr. Poling.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Dr. Poling, nice to have you. So this pretty common problem, tinnitus ringing in the ears.
3: Yeah, it's very common. Over 50 million Americans actually have some form of tinnitus or tinnitus. Um, Of those, about maybe 20 million or so have chronic tinnitus or something that's more noticeable or bothersome. Of those, even a smaller percentage, more like 2 million, have tinnitus that is so debilitating that it's hard to function in daily life.
1: Why is it? What causes it?
3: That's a great question. We have many many <laughs> I've you brilliant you yeah. <laughs> tricked me already, but millions of people are working on this across the world right now because it is such a big problem. We think that um, there's some connection with hearing loss. Over 90% of those who have tinnitus have a noise-induced hearing loss or some mm-hmm. age-related hearing loss associated with it. So that's number one what we try to address. And
2: does it progress if I if I notice it in the morning when I wake up, but I don't
3: really notice it the rest of the day? Is it there and I'm just not noticing it? And will it get worse? Those are all great questions as well. We know there's a strong connection between stress and the perception of tinnitus or ringing. Really? So the more exhausted you are or the more stressed you are, you might perceive it more. Mm -hmm. Also, the less distractions you have around you in this really noisy world, Mm -hmm. the more noticeable it is. That's why you notice it probably mostly at nighttime. Mm
1: -hmm. Are there some medications that can cause tinnitus?
3: Um, tinnitus is a, a common side effect of a lot of medications that are out there. So if you have those concerns, it is best to bring it up to your physician.
1: And what about uh, blood vessel problems? Aren't there certain kinds of blood vessel problems that can contribute or cause tinnitus also?
3: Oh, certainly. A percentage of those with tinnitus can be linked back to a medical um, medical concern or issue.
1: So when you see a new patient with tinnitus, what's the workup
3: involved? Sure. We always start with a hearing test to start out with, since such a majority of those with tinnitus have some type of hearing loss associated with it. So we start with a hearing evaluation, and then we often will um, loop in a medical colleague, like a physician, to evaluate the medical comorbidities that might contribute to it.
1: Uh, would that involve uh, potential imaging of the of the brain uh, or the spine or the mouth area? Uh, Absolutely.
3: It could lead to that. Initially, what you're talking about is just coming in for a more traditional hearing test where you're putting headphones on and you're listening to sounds and we're measuring how soft you can hear at different frequencies or pitches. Do you
2: have tinnitus in both ears or can you just get it in one or is it uh, even?
3: It's all of the above. Okay, (laughs) So it can be one ear. It can be um, just, you know, a brief moment in time. It can be constant or sort of consistent and, like you said, more noticeable over time Mm -hmm. as well. It's more the constant tinnitus that stays there and doesn't go away that we want you to get evaluated.
1: All right, so let's talk about treatment. Um, I assume that if it's medication-related, you would change the medication. Uh, If there's a blood vessel problem associated with this or causing it, that might be uh, amenable to some uh, different kind of treatment. Um, What about earwax? Do you start there? I mean, can too much earwax be a cause of tinnitus?
3: Um, I wouldn't call it a cause of tinnitus, but it might make it most noticeable. So if you think about plugging up your ears, now all of a sudden that internal noise in your head is now louder, and that's what you can hear. So certainly looking in the ears and cleaning out any earwax is typically the first place we start. But if it is something medically related, there are lots of different treatment options that way. The majority of these cases are not, there isn't a medical cause for the tinnitus that's treatable. So then we start talking about amplification or hearing aids.
2: I just want to know more about the stress-related piece of it. That that surprised me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've heard there's products available to help you not notice the tinnitus. So I imagine that's like a training that you do, like a meditation or some sort of... Is that what's happening when people say you can train your brain to not notice the tinnitus?
3: Absolutely. Um some of it is just sort of masking the tinnitus or making it less noticeable. So it could be introducing a fan noise um as you're going to sleep so you can focus on the fan noise rather than the tinnitus or ringing in your ears. Other there are actual therapies that are out there to like you're saying train the brain to make it less noticeable. And then also like I said stress can inter- you know interfere a lot of um, complexities in your daily life anyway. So we do find that it's not necessarily stress causes tinnitus, but we know that there's a strong correlation there. So reducing the stress does um, reduce the perception of tinnitus.
1: So you talked about a a white noise machine. That's Mm -hmm. what people would use at night, not not necessarily during the day, though.
3: Um, In some cases, people do find relief from using that during the day.
1: All right, and then there's this program called Tinnitus Retraining, right? Is Mm -hmm. that what you and Tracy were just talking about? That's a
3: version. Yeah, that's one of the options. And how does that work? So that's called Tinnitus Retraining Therapy, or TRT. That's sort of a, a similar approach where you, over time, sort of condition yourself to focus less on that ringing sound and more on a noise of some kind or another sound distracting noise, which could be a white noise or it could be something similar to that.
1: And then you sorry. Then you mentioned hearing aids.
3: Yes, yeah. I was just going <laughs> to ask about. Yeah, why do I want to put hearing aids in? That is so <laughs> counterintuitive. <laughs> um, when you think about 90% of those attendees have hearing loss, the hearing loss part piece is what's actually the part that you can manage. Mm-hmm. So when you put the hearing aids in, you can now make sounds in your environment more audible, so you can focus on the world around you rather than that noise or ringing in your ears. So that it makes, just, sort of makes yeah. it less distracting. That makes so
2: much sense. But on the surface, when you say right. it didn't, it makes sense at all. So, again, hearing aids in both ears or just one ear, what usually works best for patients?
3: Most people have hearing loss in both ears, so they're typically talking about hearing aids in both ears. But some people only have hearing loss in one ear and sometimes only tinnitus in one ear, so that might be the appropriate path.
1: What about medications? Are there any medications that are helpful?
3: <laughs> There's no scientifically proven, known medication that treats tinnitus.
1: All right, what about uh, what we uh, see on TV uh, not infrequently is an ad for lipoflavonoid. flavonoid and it says on the bottle the number one ENT doctor recommended for t- for tinnitus. Does um, it work?
3: We, we do see those a lot. I have not seen any scientific evidence to show that those are more anything more than a placebo but that is something that is constantly a uh, focus and interest. But the crazy thing about placebos mm-hmm. is that if they work, it works.
2: Yeah. And if the thing would be though is if this medication is harmful, I mean you don't want that. But Absolutely. I can totally see. If this taking this pill makes that ringing in your head go away, Why would it be harmful?
3: Absolutely. And there's all types of solutions and treatments on the table until we really know what the true underlying cause is. So as we advance the research and find out those specific causes, then we can better improve on the treatment. But always check with your physician before starting any sort of supplemental treatment.
2: So how is the research going on tinnitus? I mean, is there any, any bright spot on the horizon?
3: I think there are. There are lots of exciting opportunities now. As we advance our clinical tools, we're also getting more individuals who want to know the answer why. So the more we learn and the more people volunteer for research, it's really helping us.
1: And don't forget about the placebo effect, 30%. So 30% Mm -hmm. of people get better uh, or think they're better just by taking the, the medication, even if, even if it's a sugar pill. I, mean, I love it's, it. It's truly If it works, I'll
2: take it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We've been talking about tinnitus so ringing in the ears with May, a Mayo Clinic expert, Dr. Gayla Poling.
2: Dr. Poling, myth or matter of fact? Does hearing loss affect our overall health? Is that true? Is that a fact or is that a myth?
3: Uh, I think it's a little bit of both, right? <laughs> hearing is part of our everyday health function. So certainly things that impact our overall health impact hearing and certainly we've just talked about how stress and hearing loss can contribute to stress. All of that can impact our overall health as well.
1: So I guess as we age, just like everything else, um, our brain or our ear wears out also, right? It makes it more difficult to hear because it's an extremely common problem.
3: It is. I mean, our ears are on 24-7, 70s a week our entire life. Even at night when we're sleeping, they're doing work. <laughs> so they never really get a break. So there is a certain amount of wear and tear over time. There are certain things that we do throughout our lifespan to sort of accelerate that wear and tear. So think about the more you use your ears and maybe they're working harder around noisier sounds early on in life. That might mean that age-related hearing loss comes on a little sooner for you.
1: And, and what is it that wears out? Is it uh, the, what's in the middle ear or the inner ear or the nerve to the brain or wh- where does what goes wrong?
3: Right. The majority of what we're talking about with age-related hearing loss is hearing loss in the inner ear. So it's actually the small internal delicate structures within the inner ear that wear and tear over time.
1: The hammer, the anvil and the stapes?
3: Nope, the actual the hair cells. So oh, the Oh, way
1: in, inside. Way
3: inside. Okay. And then the same thing wears out if we had a, a noise trauma or some sort of loud sound that we were exposed to. Those delicate structures get damaged and they don't regenerate or grow back over time. No matter what age you are, no matter what age you are.
1: All right, who's at risk? I know one thing, it's more common in males than females, isn't it?
3: Yes, and it's more common later, um, the older you are.
1: So age is a a factor. Mm -hmm. Loud noise exposure?
3: Yep, so if you're more exposed to loud noises. And also, just um, we're learning a lot about genetic factors. Some people just seem to be more predisposed to hearing loss than others.
1: Family history? Yeah. All right, what about uh, diabetes and smoking and heart disease?
3: Yep, those are also associated with increased risk of hearing loss. Yeah, it's all interconnected.
1: And radiation, prior radiation um, for radiation, head and neck cancer yep, can affect your can. hearing cancer.
3: Medication exposure, so certain types of chemotherapies and things like that can also accelerate age-related hearing loss.
2: When it comes to loud noises, I mean, now I'm worried about the teenagers at my house mm-hmm. that they've got their earbuds in. Is there any way that we can fix any of that damage. It's unfortunate that the message doesn't get through our thick skulls when we're younger <laughs> or even now, right, that we should be treating our hearing a little more delicately.
3: Absolutely. We certainly know now more now than we did then, so to speak. So there's no current cure, or magic fix for that. The best fix is to prevent it from happening in the first place. But now that we know that that does happen and that does show up later in life, we are better about more health, you know, public health campaigns to really talk about how loud the sounds are and for how long. Your ears are meant to be used, so you shouldn't stop experiencing and enjoying life because of that. It's just about moderation and wearing hearing protection if you're going to be staying next to to a speaker at a rock concert.
1: Well, I think you said that you have tractor-related hearing yeah. loss because you grew up on the farm. Yeah. I have lawnmower-related hearing right. loss. Right, And then the kids today um, have those earbuds or whatever, they—they
2: and, and it, it's loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's going to be the next problem. But mm-hmm. also, um, I would love to know if you notice noticed this. Kids today maybe are wearing ear protection more often, too. I know I've got a kid who's in the marching band, mm-hmm. and all of those drummers wear earplugs. Right. When the band is performing and they've got fancier ear protection, I guess Mm -hmm. you'd call it. Um, Does it make a difference if I'm just using the little piece of foam um, earplugs or should I be investing in a good set of earplugs for ear protection? Custom made. Absolutely.
3: Uh It depends on what your noise exposures are. So for musicians, having a foam earplug that just turns everything down doesn't necessarily help the music quality. So they're investing in more custom hearing protection for a musician. So it's only canceling out those really damaging pitches or damaging sounds. That can be really beneficial. But for other things like mowing the lawn or you're out um, on the tractor, you want as much protection as you can because you just want to bring the whole loudness level down. And those are more like the foam earplugs or the -the over-the-ear hearing protectors.
2: What are things, uh, I think people are surprised to hear that a lawnmower can be something that's damaging. I mean, what are some of the um, unknown um, hearing damage that people might experience?
3: One of the biggest things that we experience in the clinic with people on lawn, with using lawnmowers is they might be using maybe a personal music player, playing that in their ears and turning it up loud enough to hear it over the noise of the lawnmower. Lawnmower. So now you're making that sound that was already loud, even louder, and it's even closer to the inner ear, which is the part that you can damage. So in those cases, I would recommend people invest in earmuffs or hearing protection that actually plays music too, so you can cancel out the dangerous noise and actually enjoy your music.
1: All right, talk to us about hearing aids. Um, they're good sometimes, but they're not great, are they?
3: They don't solve the damage itself, right? It's sort of like putting on eyeglasses. It doesn't fix the underlying damage. So depending on where that damage is, if it's in the inner ear or more in the nerve, they might not be as beneficial for some people as others.
1: Um, and can you go, is it important to go to an audiologist to pick out a hearing aid or help them, have them help you pick out a hearing aid?
3: Absolutely. Your journey starts with a really thorough diagnostic evaluation by an audiologist. Uh, They can not only determine what type of damage or help determine what type of damage you're experiencing with your hearing, they can help guide you to the most appropriate solution for managing that.
1: And the cost. And and what's Mm -hmm. the difference between a regular hearing aid and a digital hearing aid?
3: So we're fortunate today that everything's digital, and with the advances in technologies that we see all around us with cell phones and, you know, special devices that you can communicate on, um, all of that has made hearing aids much more accessible and the technology much more accessible. So I would say that all of them are digital now, but it is, you can get sort of the Cadillac model for the most basic entry, and it really depends on your hearing loss what you need.
1: And what does digital really mean?
3: Digitalist means that we can control the parameters enough that we can really optimize the the hearing aids to suit your hearing loss.
1: Okay, so you know based on my audiogram what uh, the range where I have difficulty hearing, and then you can adjust the digital hearing aid to maximize. my ability to hear in that particular range?
3: Absolutely. So depending on the period or time in your life or even the type of hearing loss you have, there might be things that just making everything louder is helpful for you. Those are more assisted listening devices, so that's a little different than a hearing aid that's more personalized.
2: Finally, what is the research that's being done on hearing loss? I mean, we talked about tinnitus. Anything else you want to share?
3: Sure. We're spending a lot of our time and effort on looking at new and improved diagnostic tools to really detect what the exact cause of the hearing loss is. We know those delicate structures in the inner ear are a source of um, wear and tear, but they're also the earliest indicator of change. So now we're looking at that in a more preventative hearing healthcare model where we can detect those changes earlier in life and maybe tie them into prevention.
1: All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Poling, for teaching us so much about uh, tinnitus, ringing in the ears, and also age-related hearing loss. We appreciate it. Dr. Gayla Poling is the Director of Adult and Pediatric Diagnostics in Audiology at Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank
2: you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear how outcomes for pancreatic cancer patients are improving. And later on in the program, we'll discuss treatment options for a herniated disc.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Have you ever heard of orthostatic hypotension? It's a form of low blood pressure that happens when you stand up from sitting or lying down. Now, normally, when you stand up, blood tends to pool in your legs and belly. Your body compensates for that by increasing your heart rate and constricting blood vessels, so enough blood returns to the heart and is sent to your brain. If you have orthostatic hypotension, that process doesn't happen the way it should. Instead, when you stand up, your blood pressure drops, often leading to lightheadedness, dizziness, headaches, fatigue, blurred vision, and sometimes fainting. The cause usually can be identified. That's important because understanding the cause allows treatment to be tailored to your specific situation. The goals of treatment for orthostatic hypotension are to prevent blood pressure from falling too low and improve quality of life. Treatment targets the underlying cause and low blood pressure itself. So, one test used in people with orthostatic hypotension is a tilt table test. It evaluates how your body reacts to changes in position. During that test, you lie in a table that tilts to raise the upper part of your body and your blood pressure is taken frequently as the table moves. Depending on the underlying condition suspected of causing your condition, your healthcare provider may recommend other tests. So treatment is geared toward addressing the underlying cause. When orthostatic hypotension is caused by a medication, changing the dose or switching medications may be all that's needed to relieve symptoms. Sometimes lifestyle changes, such as drinking more water, adding salt, limiting alcohol, and standing up slowly can ease orthostatic hypotension treatment must be individualized because regulating blood pressure is complex and in other news nearly one in every three american adults has high levels of bad cholesterol or ldl lifestyle changes can lower your bad cholesterol and reduce the risk of heart attack and stroke one way is by adding a daily dose of a tiny seed with a lot of nutritional power to your diet Catherine Zaratsky, a Mayo Clinic dietician, says seeds are very concentrated, little packages full of nutrients, and flaxseed is high in healthy fat, vitamins, and minerals, but that's not all. Flaxseeds are a great source of dietary fiber, and fiber can be beneficial in helping to reduce our overall cholesterol level. Most Americans don't get enough fiber. Zaratsky says fiber is for digestion and heart health. And for people with diabetes, it can help regulate their blood glucose. You don't have to add a lot of flax to your diet to get the benefits. So whether you choose whole or ground flaxseed, just keep it in a cool, dark place. Zaratsky does recommend whole flax for the best nutritional value and to grind it because that allows your body to more readily absorb the nutrients that are in that flax. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the National Cancer Institute, it's estimated that 55,000 Americans will be diagnosed with cancer of the pancreas in the year 2018. The pancreas is an organ that lies behind the lower part of your stomach, and its job is to secrete enzymes to help with digestion and hormones that help manage your blood sugar. It produces insulin. Now, unfortunately, the cancer can develop in the pancreas, and when it does, it typically spreads rapidly to nearby organs, and it's seldom detected in its early stages when it's potentially curable.
2: While pancreatic cancer ranks as about the 10th most common cancer, it's the third most deadly. Only around 8% of those diagnosed with pancreatic cancer live more than five years after their diagnosis. But new, more aggressive treatments are offering some hope to patients with cancer of the pancreas. Here to discuss treatment options is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Santhi Vege. Welcome to the program. It's nice to meet you. Thank you.
1: This has always been one of those cancers that was difficult to treat, and the prognosis was usually dismal. Why? Yeah, very good
4: question. But before that, Mayo Clinic is unique to practice to deal with this deadly disease, pancreatic cancer, because this is probably the only place that I know on the planet where you have a group of gastroenterologists who are called pancreatologists, who deal only with the pancreatic disease. Mm. About five to six world-class pancreatic surgeons, about five to six world-class medical oncologists who specialize chemotherapy for the pancreatic cancer, and similar number of people in the pathology, laboratory diagnosis, epidemiology, research, and radiology all specialized together, close to 25 to 30 people. So that's the greatness about this place.
1: So you've got an incredible team, and all of them are focused on this one problem.
4: Yes. And uh, to answer
1: your question, why
4: is it so deadly, one thing is because of its location. As you rightly said, it's so deeply seated in the belly, just resting on the backbone For decades, we didn't have any tools to reach this organ. It's only in the last couple of decades that we started having endoscopic ultrasound so we can go into the stomach, do the ultrasound, and even take biopsies. And also because the symptoms are so nonspecific, most of the people go as indigestion, acid, being given prilosec, etc. And by the time they really think that something is big, it's too late. So lack of specific symptoms and then lack of tests to reliably reach this are two of the important reasons why we diagnose this at a late stage.
2: Do we have any idea what causes pancreatic cancer?
4: Well, like any other cancer, definitely no, but there are a variety of things that have been described in the last two decades. And for example, people who are obese, people who smoke, these are the two risk factors. People, also people who are diabetics, they have much higher rate, which is about two to three times the general population rate. And also people who have certain genetic abnormalities like BRCA abnormalities, which also cause breast cancer. People with two or more first degree relatives, they have increased risk. People who have certain inherited syndromes where there is a risk of pancreatic cancer and other cancer. And also people who have chronic pancreatitis, a scarring disease that happens. These are some of the risk factors. Uh, that can uh, be associated with very high instance of this cancer.
1: So there's no screening test for cancer of the pancreas. If you, What makes you suspect it and what test do you do to confirm it? Correct.
4: So you're absolutely right. Right now in 2018, we don't have screening tests, although a variety of screening research protocols are going on, including our own group, Dr. Chari. And the screening can be done for the general population without any hereditary pancreatic cancer syndromes or first-degree relatives that is actually the bigger screening like colorectal cancer screening but also people who have two or more first degree relatives or some inherited syndromes with known genetic abnormalities there there is a little more screening uh practices have come up recently but the bottom line is still there is nothing that is standard of care as of now although it's it's coming up like a blood test do you mean yes for the people with the uh, two or more first-degree relatives, or if they have other inherited syndromes, then what we are doing right now, we actually do the endoscopic ultrasound, look at the pancreas, and then alternate that with the MRI every 6 to 12 months. That's what we are doing for this 10%. 10% only belong to this familial inherited thing. But the remaining 90%, which is the population-based cancer, That's where my group and Dr. Chari, they have been working for last 10 years, and now they are trying to come up with an enriched group where there is 6% or more risk of pancreatic cancer in their lifetime. Because unless the risk is above a certain threshold, no screening test will be cost-effective. And so they are taking people with new-onset diabetes and also people with new-onset diabetes, some dyspepsia, and also some weight loss, and a blood test called CA99 that is a little high, then they're going on and doing CT scan and if required endoscopic ultrasound. But it's still in the process of a research study.
1: So to diagnose it, you pick it up on an MRI scan or a CT scan, and then you can do a biopsy and confirm the diagnosis.
4: Exactly. CT scan is the most commonly used test.
1: All right. Now we want to know. You're here, we hope, to tell us that there are better treatments now available for cancer of the pancreas. What are those?
4: Absolutely. First of all, as is the case for any cancer, surgery is... The gold standard. But because we have been doing great surgery for 50, 60 years, but still, you know, people are coming back within a few months with recurrent cancer, we asked ourselves, is there something we need to change? So, A... The surgery should be refined, which has been refined, and now we have several surgeons who can do whipple's pancreatic duodenectomy or pancreatic resections with least mortality and morbidity.
1: But That means you're taking out the entire tumor in the pancreas and the duodenum,
2: right? I could not have repeated what he just said. Oh, I'm so sorry, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds like a question. So
1: so removal of the
4: tumor. But now what is being done, and the pendulum is shifting that if there is even slightest suggestion that the tumor is not extremely localized in the sense that if there is any touching of the blood vessels around or if there is a high CA-19-9 blood test, then we know that by doing a great surgery, we are only going to pat ourselves on the back, but it's not being translated into long-term outcome. So now we give them 3 months chemotherapy up front and then operate on them, so much so that they finish the chemotherapy, which in the past, giving it after this big surgery, they are not able to finish. To be able to give good outcome, you have to have surgery as well as X amount of chemotherapy. Then we have really two good chemotherapy regimes available for the last five to eight years, which we didn't have earlier. So these are the two big things which we think is going to make an impact. But then, of course, there are so many new genetic uh, Testing of the tumor, trying to see personalized medicine, who responds to what chemotherapy. Those are also in the offing.
1: All right. So you've got better surgery, better chemotherapy. And how has the
4: prognosis improved? How much? Correct. Normally, if you take all comers, it's still dismal, 5 to 6%. This is the same cancer where the number of cases you diagnose in a year and the number who die in that year is almost equal. But now, with this preoperative chemotherapy, then you do better surgery. We are having five-year survival coming up to 30%, 35%. So that's an improvement.
1: Yeah, huge improvement. Yeah. What a great team you have. We've been talking about cancer of the pancreas with gastroenterologist Dr. Santhi Begay. Dr. Begay, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. When it comes to back pain, you've probably heard the term herniated disc, sometimes called a slipped disc or a ruptured disc. A herniated disc refers to a problem with one of the rubbery cushions or the discs between the individual bones, the vertebra, that are stacked up one on top of the other and that make up your spine.
2: I have heard that that spinal disc is kind of like a jelly donut. Well, you know what? You're exactly
1: right. <laughs>
2: Yum! <laughs>
1: it's got a soft center encased within a tougher outer layer. And a herniated disc occurs when some of that jelly, that softer part, pushes out or herniates through a tear in the tougher exterior. Exactly right, like
2: a jelly donut. Doesn't sound good. (laughs) What? A jelly donut does sound good. (laughs) So. A herniated disc can irritate nearby nerves and result in pain, numbness, or weakness in an arm or leg. Here to discuss treatment options is Mayo Clinic orthopedic spine surgeon, Dr. Brett Friedman. Welcome to the program, Dr. Friedman. It's nice to meet you.
5: Hello, guys. It's great to be here.
1: Always nice to have one of my colleagues on the show, isn't it? Absolutely. Dr. Friedman, great to have you with us. So when we talk about herniated disc or slipped disc or ruptured disc, do they all mean the same thing?
5: They do. It's uh, different common terms for the same idea. So that uh, jelly donut uh, has an outer rubbery ring and an inner GUI center. And if that rubbery ring breaks or uh, fails for any reason, uh, that allows the GUI center to come out. And as it comes out, it can start to push on nerves. Uh, It can cause both pressure as well as inflammation on the nerves, producing symptoms both uh, in the legs and also in the back. But uh, all those uh, terms uh, would be indicating the same kind of phenomena, which is that the disc, that rubbery cushion between the spinal bones, uh, has failed for some reason and has resulted in some pressure on the uh, adjacent structures.
2: Unlike a jelly donut, though, which you can fill back up with more jelly, I don't (laughs) suppose that you can uh, put that filling back into the disc.
5: Yes. Uh, uh, my daughter would be very disappointed. Uh, she's <laughs> a very big fan of jelly donuts, and there's <laughs> no jelly back in this donut. Mm. Uh, you're born with what you got, and when it starts to come out, uh, then that is lost to uh, your system. That jelly uh, will dissolve for many different reasons, uh, aging being one of them, uh, but certainly with uh, any type of disc herniation, uh, once it's gone, it's gone. And uh, one of the treatments we do for disc herniations, uh, discectomy, uh we typically try and preserve all the remaining good jelly uh, inside the donut. So
1: how many discs do we have?
5: Uh, we have uh, 24 different spinal bones, and uh, between every uh, spinal bone, there's a disc. Uh, the ones that we're most concerned about are going to be in the lumbar spine, though, so between the L1 bone and the uh, L5 and S1 bones.
1: Now, you mentioned that age is one of the, the risk factors. Are there others? I mean, are there certain people who are more likely to have a ruptured or herniated disc than others?
5: Uh, It it, it mirrors what we see with uh, generalized uh, lumbar spinal disease. And so certainly one of the biggest risks is uh, being overweight. Uh, And so weight control is an important piece of the uh, process. A sedentary lifestyle is uh, a risk factor onto its own. And the reason for that is we actually have more pressure on discs when we sit down than we actually stand up. And so our spines weren't really designed to be sitting for hours at a time. And then uh, there are certainly genetic factors. Uh, Sometimes this runs in families. There's uh, uh, things we do, like, for instance, smoking, uh, which hurts the quality of our tissues, and so that can increase the risk as well.
2: It seems, though, that people who maybe don't have good back health also can have herniated discs, and that means they don't lift correctly, or can something like that lead to it as well?
5: Great, great point, yes. Uh, Any type of uh, mechanical stress uh, that's above and beyond what the spine was designed to do, uh, whether that's a one-time stress from a trauma uh, or excessive lifting, uh, or repetitive stress like sitting at the uh, uh, driver's seat of a truck and seeing the vibrational forces over and over again over a long period of time in the seated position. Uh, and so uh, there's certainly a mechanical piece to it. It is a uh, nature, nurture, uh, environment, and uh, genes uh, all uh, playing together to result in this unfortunate event that happens to uh, millions of people.
1: So there are lots of reasons that people have back pain. Most often it's c- considered uh, muscular or it's related to an arthritic process uh, between the vertebral bodies. Uh, so what's the difference between that and a, a ruptured disc? What's the difference with regard to symptoms? How do you know you, your disc might have ruptured?
5: Well, and so it can be challenging. Part of uh, uh, understanding what's going on is doing a thorough workup. Uh, it starts with your primary care doctor and moving up. But when we rupture a disc, the material that comes out does two things to the nearby nerves. Uh, first, it puts pressure on the nerves. Any nerve that sees pressure tends to have uh, one of three things happen. It can have pain in the pattern of the nerve, and so you get a sciatica kind of pain running down your leg in a specific pattern. Typically, when you tell your spine surgeon where it is, they can backtrack and guess what nerve we're talking about because your legs are wired in a very um, specific pattern. Uh, It can also cause weakness, and it can cause problems with sensations, so you get tingling or numbness uh, sensations. Any or all those can occur from the pressure, but also uh, that disc, that jelly, uh, is uh, something that is very inflammatory, and so it inflames the situation, and one of our common treatments for a disc herniation is uh, epidural steroids or uh, sometimes even oral steroids, and uh, these When you say epidural? Epidural would be something that's delivered by an injection, and so the nerves sit in a sac called the dura. Uh, The space right above the dura would be called the epidural space, and so when we put steroid with an injection directly in that space, uh, we're delivering steroid right on target, and we're giving the maximum amount of steroid we can to try and reduce the inflammation. So both the mass or the pressure and the inflammation leads to the symptoms. So the symptoms can be down the leg, uh, and those, uh, when you see a spine surgeon, are the ones that we're going to hone in on, because those are the ones that are most reliably made better and most reliably uh, related to the disc herniation itself. The other symptom could be back pain, and the back pain could be related to the disc herniation or completely unrelated to it. Uh, and, and for that reason, uh, the fact that back pain comes from so many causes that we don't have a great treatment, and it's usually not part of our primary treatment strategy.
1: Is the MRI scan probably the best test to figure out for sure that it is a ruptured disc?
5: unquestionably,
1: yes. And what percentage of these patients with a herniated or ruptured disc actually need surgery? I mean, don't most of them get better without surgery? Great
5: question, yes. Uh, about 90% of people will have these symptoms spontaneously improve within about six weeks of the herniation event.
1: And when you talk about surgery, I know it, we used to always have to do it open. You'd make an incision, you'd go down, you'd get the disc out, but now you can do it through the scope, uh, and then there's a procedure called laser spine surgery. <laughs> Tell yeah. us about that.
5: So um, in the end, uh, what we need to do is uh, reverse what's occurred negatively. So the negative effect was that pressure from the disc herniation and the inflammation from the herniation, and you relieve that by taking away that fragment. And so there's multiple ways to get down deep inside the spine. Uh, as we refined our techniques and our technology, we've been able to limit the collateral damage by reducing the size of the incision and the size of the dissection. Yeah. But in the end, to make it better, we do need to relieve that pressure and that inflammation by removing the fragment. And so uh, open surgical techniques and microsurgical techniques produce similar long-term outcomes. Microsurgical techniques uh, produce uh, um, an outcome uh, that may be uh, uh, had in a quicker fashion because there's less collateral damage, less dissection. Uh, other technologies, uh, using lasers or uh, other uh, um, uh, micro minimally invasive uh, opportunities uh, um, leave the question of did you actually treat the primary issue and that is did you remove the disc that was offending the nerve because if you haven't done that then I challenge that you've actually done anything that was productive for the patient and so that's not something we offer here
1: all right so the case for uh, micro micro surgery might be a little bit overstated
5: I think so. Any uh, pretty picture of a Band-Aid on a back uh, alone is uh, going to be an underestimate of the uh, impact of uh, spinal surgery.
1: All right, and what a relief it is if you've ever had a ruptured disc to have that pressure taken off. So we've been talking with orthopedic spine surgeon Dr. Brett Friedman. Dr. Friedman, thanks so much for being with us.
5: Thank you, guys. And that's our program for this week.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station. For more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.